We pray what's been heard before already in discipling, discipleship, and what you hear now will have an impact on your life as it has on mine. If the word is preached, uh, it should have an effect. Uh, God's word doesn't return to him void, but does accomplish that to which it has been sent. So this morning we are back in um, we are back in Colossians chapter one. I'm just trying to see that my my uh, notes you don't mind. Unfortunately, with um, we're back in Colossians chapter one. And we are going to continue from where we left off at the last sermon. And so having said that, kindly open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. And we will read from verse 15. Colossians chapter 1. From verse 15. And we will read all the way down to verse... 20, but only preach a selection of this this morning. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And may the Lord add to us his blessing this morning, having read this word in his presence. Let us pray. Father, we pray this morning that you may grant us grace as we allow your word to change our hearts and our minds. We thank you to be able to open your word in this way and we pray for not only clarity of speech but clarity of thought that hearts may be able to receive your word and Father your word may change us as it continually does, says it sanctifies those who belong to you. And there's any man amongst us this morning, Lord, who is not yours, who is not saved, who has not received Jesus Christ as a Savior, as a Savior. May this word this morning challenge them to repent and to turn to you for eternal life. We thank you for this in Jesus' name and for your sake alone. Amen. This morning we're going to confine ourselves to verses 16 and 17. But as a way of introduction, I just want to briefly go back to verse 15. And we know from the last sermon that in verse 15, there's a reference to he, and that he that has been referred to in verse 15 all the way down to verse 20 is the son, the beloved son, that is referenced in verse 13. And so it is this son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, that Paul speaks about in verses 15 to 20. So Paul has identified the son at the end of uh, the previous section, And this is the son, this is the one, this beloved son whom we are concerned about this morning. 
the section that uh, I've read uh, is part of what is often referred to as a Christological hymn, or the Christological hymn in, in Colossians. We're not going to go into that. There's lots of debate around that. It, 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 uh, whether it is one or not doesn't change and doesn't change the impact of what Paul is writing. But just so you know, you may recognize it as a Christological hymn. It's written in a very hymnic style, uh, and that's as much as I need to say on that. But what has been recorded by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is there, firstly, for the Colossian, for the Colossian church, as, a, as he addresses heresy that's creeping into the church, but at least principles and teachings that we can apply to our lives even in this day and age. In verse 15, two indisputable relational statements is made about the Son has been made. Paul makes two statements about the Son in verse 15, and these are the two statements. Number one, how he relates to the Father, and we showed in the last sermon that he is the image of the invisible God. Not only is he equal to the Father, but when you see him, or when the people of his day saw him, they saw the Father who is invisible. John chapter 1 verse 18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, and I'm reading from the NIV version, which just lays it out in a way which wraps that thought together. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. John chapter 14 verse 8, the disciples are speaking to Jesus, and they are perplexed by the same question that perplexes so many people. Show us God. We want to see God. The same words that Moses uttered, show me your face. Here again, Philip says, show us the Father in verse 8 of John 14. And it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so we find that Jesus Christ, uh, as he walked upon the face of this earth, even though he walked clothed in human flesh, even though his glory was veiled, uh, not lost, not gone, but simply reduced uh, in his human form so that he could walk amongst men and they would not be struck dead by his deity. And so we see in verse 15 how he relates to the Father, but also we see in verse 15 how he relates to creation. And it says that he is the firstborn of all creation. And there's two significant points about the statement. First, it says he's the firstborn, and which does not signify, as we said last, last sermon, it doesn't mean that he was the first created being, or the first to be created, or the first creature that came before everything else. Um, this term, as it is used by Paul in Colossians, uh, denotes a position of supremacy over creation. He's both outside and over the created order. I know that in certain contexts, firstborn does have within its uh, meaning the first son to be born. And sometimes the first son to be born is recognized as the firstborn, but sometimes not. And we have those uh, wonderful examples with um, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, second born, gets the firstborn's uh, privileges. We had that same uh, situation another generation later with Joseph's sons, where uh, Jacob crosses his hands and confers the blessing of the firstborn on the younger of Joseph's sons. So it doesn't mean that because someone was born first into a family that they would then be conferred with the firstborn rights or the rights of the firstborn. God uh, moved within uh, the nation. And he selected who would be firstborn as he continued to provide the line through which the Savior would be born. 
There's not a single person, uh, sorry, and what else is also emphasized in that verse, which I want to not overlook, is that there's also emphasis on the firstborn being the firstborn of all creation. So not only is he the firstborn, but he's the firstborn of all creation. A very inclusive word. There's not a single person, a single object, a single being anywhere that's not included in this all. Having made this indisputable and unequivocal statement that he is the firstborn of all creation, Paul then sets out to justify that statement by writing verse 16. And he writes that by starting to say in verse 16, For by him all things were created. The word for in verse 16 helps us to think back to what has just been said. It links verse 16 to the end of verse 15. Paul is saying in verse 16, Because all things were created by him, he is therefore qualified to bear the title of firstborn. It's not saying that because he created, now he receives a title of firstborn. That's not what it's saying. But it does say, Paul is saying that the firstborn role of the son is evidence in the things that he did. Only one that had that authority and that power and that right was able to create. No creature could create another creature. Creatures are created by the hand of an uncreated God. His essential role in the creation of all things gives him, and only him, the right and the power and the ability to be called the firstborn of creation. The evidence for this firstborn status in verse 15 is found in his creatorial role as laid out in verses 16 and 17. So in verses 16 and 17, Paul then takes that uh, role as the firstborn and he unpacks it and he, and he develops it to get to a certain point which is going to drive home when we get to verse 18 and 19 onwards. Paul then goes about presenting this evidence that is in verse 16 and 17 of his firstborn uh, status by stating several prepositional phrases in these two verses. In verse 16, there are three prepositional phrases. By him, all things were created. Through him, all things were created. For him, all things were created. And verse 17, there are another two. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. These phrases reveal rich truths about the creatorial work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And too often we, we read that, especially we, we go over it and we say, well, yeah, we know what it means. It's all about Christ and creation, but what about Christ and creation? They may be simple words, simple prepositions, but they, but they contain a wealth of information about the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as he relates to creation. They are worthy of serious consideration. When we consider verse 16, we will see three truths about Christ and his creatorial work. We see the centralized plan of creation, we see the cooperative process in creation, and the culminating purpose of creation. All those are contained within verse 16 and are built around uh, these prepositional uh, phrases we find there. The first one, the centralized plan for creation is captured by this phrase, by him all things were created. And as we get into the scriptures again, we are continually faced with interpretive challenges. We have to read and then understand what we are reading, and we have to unpack deeper and deeper to get down to the meaning of or the intention of what the author meant. And so, this little word that is translated in your Bibles, if you have ESV, or your Bible, if you have NASB, by, does present a bit of a challenge. And the challenge, the challenge is evident we look at how various Bible versions translate this word. 
The ESV says, for by him all things created. And those words are exactly the same in the NASB, for by him all things were created. And the same in the NKJV, the New King James Version, for by him all things were created. These translations seem to indicate the activity of the Son in creation. It seems to say that this was done by him. If I say to you that this pulpit was built by John, your assumption is that John took his skills, his tools, and his effort, and he built the pulpit. That's how we use that word in English. Uh, but we need to be careful with his translations because sometimes these words uh, have a meaning or convey to us a meaning which is not in the original. So why do I say that? Well, if you go to some other versions that say that refer to this or use the same verse or quote the same verse, we reference it in this way. The NIV says, for in him all things were created. One of the oldest little translations is a very little translation, and one I go to very often is, the, is Young's little translation. It's a very old translation. Uh, the Young's, you will hear from the way he writes, is very wooden and very clumsy, but he gets to the meaning of words. Young says, because in him were all, the, were the all things created. And so for kind of balance, I've tried to find a very modern literal text, and I found it in a very uh, modern text, which, thinks, which sets out to improve on the NASB, which is your legacy standard Bible. And the legacy standard Bible says, for in him all things were created. So right away we can see between the versions, there is not a play in words, but some translated one way and some another. Using the English word in to translate the original word gives us a different perspective on the meaning of this phrase if we only read it in English. And we have to be careful because this is saying something about Christ. That all things were created by him is certainly implied. We know that and we know from other parts of scripture and I'll show later on from the verses right here that yes, he was active in creation. We're not saying that he wasn't. We will never say that because the Bible has taught us that from cover to cover. But what is being said here, the way the author is using the words here, does not say that. His act of creation is dealt with specifically later on in the verse. In the same verse, he does get to that. But right here, in the beginning, he says, in him, all things were created. His act of creation is clearly seen in passages such as Hebrews 1.10, where the father clearly proclaims the son's work in creation. In Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews writes in chapter 1 verse 10, as the father is speaking to the son, and the, psalm, and the father quotes from the Psalms, and he says, you, Lord, the father speaking to the son, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth at the beginning, and the heavens and the works, and the heavens are the works of your hands. So it's clear from Scripture that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the beloved Son of God, is and rather was active in creation. But what is Paul saying? And we need to get to the bottom of what he's saying here. Again, in verse 16 of Colossians chapter 1, without denying his active role in creation, Paul emphasizes the fact that he is the one in whom creation is centralized. In other words, the emphasis of Colossians 1.16 is that nothing came into existence independently of the Son. Nothing came to be without the Son being the primary cause of that. Nothing came into being by its own effort. Nothing came into being because of some innate condition. We have this um, ideology which says that nature somehow got along by itself and one generation of um, incomplete life form somehow generated something else. That's a fairy tale. Nothing was sourced from interplanetary dust. 
The aliens didn't see the planet. And you may laugh. Right now, in America, a general can't tell you that the thing they shot down, whether it was aliens or not. He won't put his head on the block. So don't laugh at this. It may sound funny to us because we know the truth. But um, this is a real um, um, reason why some think we exist. Aliens seeded the planet. Or it's the chance collision of subatomic structures, the Big Bang. All of these uh, remove from the existence of life as we know it the work of Christ. But to the chagrin of evolutionists, Colossians clearly states that there was, that there was thought and planning and design and intent in bringing about the creation of all things. And Christ was central to every one of those aspects of creation. The sense of this is captured by the Apostle John when he writes in the first chapter of his gospel, and without him was not anything made that was made. John 1 verse 3. The truth that things did not create themselves, but were created by a power outside of themselves, and that that creation took place in the past as a singular, non-repetitive, non-continuous event is clear from the way Paul frames the word were created at the beginning of the verse. This presents a serious challenge to some branches of intelligent design. They want to acknowledge the need for a designer, but also want to include elements of, of evolution as an explanation for the progressive improvement in life forms over a long period of time. That is a very precarious uh, place to find yourself. There may be some of you right here in this church. There's a lot of people that have come in over time since we've taught a lot of this uh, in discipleship class. But maybe some of you feel we should make an accommodation for evolutionary model for the origins of life. You may feel, well, maybe we should just maybe not be so tight, so defined, so narrow, so precise, so biblical. <laughs> I want to encourage you to read your Bible carefully and prayerfully and see how the biblical authors were inspired to write, inspired to write accurately, but all things that the scripture touches. Everything the scripture touches is accurate. It's without defect, it's without fault. You can, you, can, you can lay your life on it. The Bible was never written as a scientific book. We know that. The Bible was not written to address uh, evolution. But where the Bible and science touch the same subject, the biblical position is irrefutable. The Bible is always right. It may look wrong to you because you have been conditioned to think in a, in a modern, secular way. It may look foolish to you because you have uh, sucked in the, the, the wisdom of the world. It may seem to you it's not logical. And that may all be fine. You have to work through that. But the point is, we can say without any fear of contradiction, whatever the Bible touches, uh, even things such as the origins of life and evolution, or, or what is termed evolution in the world, the Bible's position is irrefutable. And when it comes to the origin of all things, the Bible is clear and unbending. There's no ambiguity. And if someone says to you, well, uh, we know for sure that things started uh, by a big bang and evolved over time. Water fell in the rock. The rock became a pool. The pool became a life form. The life form became whatever else you want to put in there. Well, refer them to Job. Job chapter 38 verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, says the Lord, 
If you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. There's only one person who is an eyewitness account to the very inception of creation. And that was God himself. Because even when that first inception of creation, Genesis 1-1, was accomplished, in that accomplishment was the creation of angels who eventually watches him as he creates the rest of creation. So the purpose of this epistle is to combat the false teaching threatening the church at Colossae. There was a serious threat to the Christocentric living in this church. They were moving away from a solid paradigm. They were moving away from that which Paul had instilled in them. In chapter 2, we will see Paul admonishing them to remain centered in Christ. They were taking their eyes off Christ and were attracted by the philosophy of the time. They were attracted by the ideology of the time. They were taken by Hellenistic thought and some of things started looking very appealing to them. But here in uh, Colossians 1.16, Paul shows just how critical the centrality of Christ is to creation. And he says in verse 16 that he is that by him were created the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He brings everything of creation under this, these four categories. The first two uh, couplets in this, in this verse, uh, in heaven and on earth, uh, visible and invisible, uh, it's a linguistic tool to say something in a way which is easy to grasp with the human mind. They are called mirisms. A mirism is a linguistic device using two opposite ideas in such a way that when they put together, they form a whole. Every one of you sitting here and who's been married uh, with biblical vows being uh, repeated have used mirisms. You have said things like, uh, uh, for better or worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness, in health. Opposites being used together to bring together the idea that in the entirety of your life as my spouse, I will not leave you. I will love you, I'll care for you, I'll be responsible for you and to you. But these uh, mirisms, these couplets, taking two extremes in any life situation brought together says, in the whole of your life, uh, you and I will remain faithful and committed. And so Paul uses mirisms too. Uh, he uses this in, chap in chapter 1, verse 16. The first one, in heaven and on earth. And that mirrorism brings to us the extent of the creation that has been centered in Christ. The extent, how far does it reach? And when it says in heaven and earth, we immediately think of Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Every realm that exists, exists as a result of being created in Christ. Nothing that exists anywhere ever was created in such a way that it was not centered in Christ. Everything was centered in Him. The work of creation was not confined to the earth only. It was the sun, the moon, and the stars also. But so also was heaven. Heaven was also created by Him, who is called the firstborn of all creation. Before Genesis 1 verse 1, there was nothing. Before Genesis 1 verse 1, there was nothing except God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit 
and the realm they inhabited. We're not told what it is. We're not given a description of that. We know that they were, and that they are, and that they ever will be, and so they ever existed. But before Genesis 1 verse 1, there was nothing that we know as creation. Not on earth, neither in the created heaven. The second mutism says visible and invisible, which reminds us not only of uh, the first one of the extent of creation, but visible and invisible reminds us of the inclusiveness of all creation. Everything that lives in these realms between heaven and earth and all that it contains, um, whether they are visible or invisible, are included in, under the creation that is centered in Christ. Creation is populated by entities that fall into one of these two categories. Things that can be seen with the physical eye and things that cannot be seen with the physical eye. The things that we cannot see. We know the things that we cannot see. But even things that cannot be seen because they cannot be seen and because they're not material and because they do not occupy bodies as we have and are not physical and tangible does not mean that they were not created. And so these two mirrorisms clearly declare that everything that exists in totality exists because they were created in him. Paul then explains that, Paul explains that what constitutes these, these invisible things in the verse thereafter. Verse 16, he says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, these are the things that constitute the invisible things that were created in the Son. Let's remind ourselves how we got to these four things and try and show you why we can say they are the invisible forces, invisible entities rather, that has been created in, in Christ. We started this by, going, by reading, by preaching from chapter 1 verse 15. And Paul ends that verse by speaking about the firstborn of all creation. He then unpacks what that firstborn uh, role is by the beginning of the 60, where he says, for by him all things were created. He then takes the word all things and he unpacks that to define what it is by saying in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So Paul is gradually narrowing down, drilling down to get to a point he's trying to make. And so when he speaks about the invisible, he brings another level of clarification as to what he means, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. The visible is easy for us to determine. The invisible, invisible may present the problem. In Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10, Paul writes this. He refers to the rulers and authorities as being in heavenly places. So we know that these are authorities or entities who occupy heavenly places. In the same book, Ephesians 1, verses 20 to 21, Paul makes reference to the post-resurrection seating of Christ in the heavenly places. Far above all rule, all authority, and power, and dominion. So whatever these entities are, they are invisible, but they are resident in heavenly places. In addition to what Paul writes in Ephesians 3 and Ephesians 1, he writes in his very book, and we will get to there eventually, in chapter 2, he writes in verse 8 that he, he warns him about not being captive to the vain philosophy and the empty deceit of the day, because that vain philosophy and empty deceit was changing their mind about how they understood Christ. In verse 9, he highlights the deity of Christ as he sets up a platform to combat that uh, heresy. And in verse 10 of chapter 2, he says this. He speaks of Christ as being head over rule and authority, clearly identifying them as non-material entities which are subservient to Christ. 
So we have these invisible beings uh, who are subservient to Christ, but are also part of creation. When we take all of the foregoing into account, we come to this conclusion that the thrones, the dominions, the rulers and authorities recorded in chapter 1 verse 16 are also spirit beings, invisible to the physical eye, and who exist as part of the created order under the sun. We are not told that there are specifically angels, but this would include angels. We are not told their ranks. We are not given any of those details. It's not important to this uh, scripture, to this text, to this teaching. But we are told that they are part of the created order under Christ. Neither does Paul directly indicate if these are good angels, evil angels, or both. And that's going to present the problem to us when we get to the reconciliation of all things. We're going to have to get past this. But you're going to have to wait for that um, several months from now. <laughs> but everything is included in creation, whether they are visible or invisible. And whatever you can think of that can fit into there, it will fit in. All that he says is that everything that exists in creation, including all of nature, the sun, the moon, the stars, and the planets, and all of the invisible hosts in the heavenlies, that all of these exist purely because of the divine work of creation, which is centered in Christ, the beloved Son. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. This brings us to the other prepositional phrases in verse 16. The one that says, through him, which addresses the cooperative, the cooperative process in creation between the Father and the Son. And the phrase which says, for him, which addresses the culminating purpose, the goal of creation. Both phrases are preceded by the clause, all things were created. All things were created through him, all things were created for him. And the verb here, were, were created, looks just like the verb at the beginning of the verse because of the English translation, but they look the same but are a little difficult, a little different when we look at uh, how they, uh, what they imply, what they mean. We've already pointed out that the first mention of the verb signifies that the act of creation, which centered in the person of Christ, was a once-off event in the past. It happened once. I know it happened over a week. I know it happened over six days. But it was a single event because every creation that was, every, every life form that was created was only created once. You didn't create trees in one day and continue to create trees. Uh, trees were created. Uh, fish were, uh, life was created. Birds, etc., etc. So every event in of itself was, was a single event. And creation is, as a whole is taken as a single event. The second occurrence of the verb here, were created, is still about the divine act of creation of Genesis 1, but with the aspect of a continued effect. So I need to explain this to you. In which way can a creation have a sense of continuity if there's a once and for all action just over 6,000 years ago, over a period of six days? When God created every living thing, He built into our DNA a principle, a principle to reduce, to reproduce after our own kind. We reproduce what we are. We don't reproduce what we are not. Apes do not reproduce into people. 
Fish do not become birds. Neither do dinosaurs become birds. Uh, we reproduce after our own kind. And once God created the original life form, plants, birds, fish, up to man, the reproduction of progeny did not require successive works of creation. The reproductive principle takes care of that. The reproductive principle built into our DNA, built into us, will ensure that we keep reproducing exactly the same thing that God created, but now, of course, we know in a sinful state. The reproductive process started with the creation of the parent life form and continues up to the present uh, because of our ability, our God-given ability to continue to produce after our own kind. And that's why Paul's use of this verb signifies the ongoing effects of initial divine work of creation, another nail in the coffin of evolution. We need to grasp this. We need to, we need to plant our pegs deep in this thought that the scripture is unequivocal on this. Life only reproduces of the same kind. And that was instilled in all of creation when, it was, when creation took place under and in Christ. When he and the Son created, and when, when things were created through him, uh, these things were fixed in their kind, and the kind always produces the same kind. So what about um, that second um, that second prepositional phrase, all things were created through him. This truth is not unique to Paul, that all things were created through the Son. It's not a uniquely Pauline uh, statement. John says that in chapter 1, verse 3 of his gospel. We go there again. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. That's clear. Without Christ, nothing exists. Without him, nothing could come into existence. The writer of the Hebrews says a similar thing, as he writes in chapter 1 and verse 2. Through whom, he speaks of the Son, uh, through whom also he, the Father, created the world. And we see in, in Hebrews 1 the play between the Father and the Son, how they communicate to each other. The Father particularly uh, speaks uh, uh, on, to the Son in a way which is uniquely um, uh, uh, representative of their relationship. But it's the Son through whom also he created the world. When the Father created the things that are, he did not work alone. He did so in unison with and through the Son. The shared cooperation in the work of creation is reflected in the creation of man in Genesis, when God says, let us make man in our image. Now I know we need to be careful in Genesis, when the word is used, Elohim, it's a plural form of a word, which is attached to a single being. Um, we know that, when that, that that form uh, accentuates, magnifies the person to whom it is referring. But it also, in Genesis 1, it's hard to miss the co-working of the Trinity as creation is being rolled out. Uh, we see the Father and the Son and the Spirit working together in unison, in coordination uh, as creation is brought forward, not so that we can just have a world, but so that God could glorify himself through creation. The purpose of creation was not so that you and I can have a fun life. The purpose of creation was not so that you and I can have a wonderful career, a beautiful home, many cars, beautiful clothes, many children. All of those come with what we have, to some more, to some less, uh, to some suffering, to some joy, 
That's part of life, and God has blessed many with much, and He's blessed many with few, and He's blessed many with nothing. God's purposes continue to roll out in the lives of His creation as He deems fit. But creation was created for the glory of God. Everything we see, everything we read, everything we know about creation was so that God could be glorified. And that's exactly the uh, intent of the last uh, prepositional phrase in that verse. For all things were created for him. That's the culminating purpose of creation. The goal of creation was that not only was it centered in Christ, not only was it through Christ, but it was for Christ. And for him in a way which is unique and something we will get to later on again because what does he do with this? Uh, we will get to how ultimately under reconciling all things to his father, we'll go to First Corinthians chapter 15 and see how this creation which belongs to him, how he glorifies the father even through uh, passing on or placing that under the father's rule ultimately. Proponents of evolution continue to push the idea of the randomness of natural selection. They claim there is no designer in the development of life. Uh, that rings out all the time. Um, they call what we believe pseudoscience. Uh, they call what we believe folly, fallacy, uh, a fairy tale, uh, something that we cling to without using our brains. But they fail to understand because without the minds being regenerated, the hearts being softened, and having eternal life, and having the Holy Spirit illuminate the, the pages of the word to them, they will never see the truthfulness of what we are saying this morning. Proponents of evolution continue to push the idea of the randomness of natural selection. They claim there's no designer in the development of life. And because everything is powered by chance, there's no aim to be met. Things just move along by happenstance. Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. Things happen, things don't happen, we live, we die, we go on. And that folly has permeated the human uh, existence as long as they have refused to acknowledge that there is a creator who is God, who is greater than them, outside of them, has created them for his purposes, for his glory, and even those who refuse to acknowledge him will ultimately one day bow their knee and acknowledge him as Lord and as Master and will acknowledge him that he is indeed the King of all kings. So this very, this very framework of uh, evolutionary randomness is a very antithesis of creation. Creation is the outcome of a definite plan woefully executed by a divine creator. And that is central uh, or rather Christ is central to that. It would not have happened, as we said more than once this morning, without him, without his presence, without his being, without his power, without his authority, without his right, without his deity. He is indeed the firstborn of all creation. The ongoing consequence of life and the continued existence of all things is predicated on the continual Involvement of a divine creator. If God took his eye or mind off the world today, the world would cease. He's done that with, with portions of creation uh, throughout history. He has closed his hand on an army that was the power, most powerful army of the day, 
And the King James Version says it so quaintly, when they woke up in the morning, they were all dead men. The Syrian host conquered one angel. Christ himself said that he could have called 10,000 angels, but he didn't. The power that is at the behest of God to stop things in their tracks is beyond our understanding and description. But he has a purpose for this creation, and that purpose, one of that is, that it may be indeed fulfilled and glorify Christ. Rather than being a process of utility, creation has a purpose, and that purpose is fulfilled in Christ. Sin has marred the original creation, a work that was very good. Remember when God made things, when he created everything that existed, he pronounced a commendation of goodness on his creation. And at the end of it all, after creating man, he says it was very good. Devoid of sin, imperfection, faults, sickness, death, everything that now beleaguers the human race was absent in the Garden of Eden prior to chapter 3. When they sinned, of course, they plunged all of creation into sin, and yet God continues to show us long-suffering, tender-heartedness, and provides grace so that those who are fallen are able to come to the one who is not only the creator of all things, but who is the one who can create in them a new man and give them a new life, which is eternal. Christ will eventually nullify the ravages of sin and replace this creation with a new heaven and a new earth. But even though made totally new, it's still going to be a created heaven and a created earth. The original would have passed away. And somehow, what we see in the original is, rep- is, is produced in a perfect form in a day soon to dawn. All things were created for him. Christ is the end goal of creation. It is not random. It's not by happenstance. It's not by accident. It's not because some things came together at the right time, in the right way, just when conditions were right. And somehow a spark said nothing alike and something happened. When we said to ourselves, it sounds silly, right? People have written thousands of theses on this concept. It's produced millions of men and women who claim renown in the world of science by espousing that ideology. And the Bible lays it all flat. When we get to verse 17, we come to the last two of these prepositional phrases. The 17 says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The last two phrases that are found in verse 17 summarize what's been said in verse 16. In fact, verse 15 and 16. The very first prepositional phrase, he is before all things, re-emphasizes the pre-incarnate existence of the Son, the one who is the firstborn of all creation. Paul takes his back to how this all began. He is before all things, which is an implication of being the firstborn of creation. We see it very clearly that in this particular context, the firstborn signifies his authority, his supremacy, and his right to be over creation. But there is also, as Paul raises here, that he was before all things. He had to be before all things, before all things could be. He was there so that he could create. And so he was first in that sense, not first in creation, but before all things, so that he was the originator, the planner, the architect, 
the builder and the one who produced all things. He is before anything else could have been. He is before anything else could have been. And we can only use that verb of Christ and of God and of Spirit. They're the only ones who ever are. They, they have been, they are, they will be in ways which we cannot. In fact, that's exactly what God said to Abraham. My name is I am who I am. He is. And he is before anything else could ever have been. The last prepositional phrase, as Paul rounds over the section, and he's dealing with the section of creation in verses 15 down to 17, and from 18 to 20, he's going to move into a new creation, as we see in the church. And verse 17 to 18 kind of sits as a tr- at a transitional point and kind of takes us out of the one and moves into the other. And so at the end of verse 17, he says, And in him all things hold together. And this places every facet of creation under the supremacy of Christ by stating that everything, all of creation, whether heaven or earth, whether things visible or invisible, whether thrones or rulers or dominions or powers, everything that falls into the sphere of the created order exists simply because they are held together by Christ. In Him, all things exist. The essential role of Christ in the divine work of creation is clearly set out in the scriptures. This is not just a fact that we embrace to, to use to clobber evolutionists. It's a doctrine to keep us deeply focused on the significance that should fill us with joy and confidence. We live in a world that's filled with doubt, and doubt is being pushed into our minds at every single level. And doubt is being pushed into the hearts of your kids in ways which was never pushed into ours. And so we have this we have a sense that we are walking on a very wobbly foundation. Can we justify what we believe? Yes, we can. It may not be received well. We may be ridiculed for that, but we can justify what we believe. The preaching of the cross, it says Paul in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, is to them who are perishing foolishness. They will never see the light of what Paul writes here. They will never understand this because... It takes away the, the, the power, the volition from nature. It makes nature a self-creator. And they like that because that gives them an opening to do all kinds of things and impose all kinds of things on you and me. But if they acknowledge creation, they're going to have to acknowledge a designer who's over and above them, a designer who's before them, a designer who is outside of sin, and therefore a designer who is holy, and a designer to whom they are going to be held accountable. And they will not have that. On this subject, on the subject of creation versus evolution, on the subject of the veracity of creation within schools of, of learning, many have been known to repeat a phrase that's been said by a professor, that even if evolution doesn't fit the bill, we cannot allow a God into the door. He cannot put his foot into the door because then he realizes he's going to be accountable. This doctrine of, is of deep significance and should fill us with joy and confidence. Knowing this, knowing that this one who holds the entire work of creation together and keeps it working is the same one in whom all things are held together. It's the same one who holds our hand. He's the one 
in whose life, in, in whom our lives have been secured. Not just this life, which will pass, as it will pass us, but our lives, we will live eternally, secure with Him, who not only created the world, and who's going to create the new heavens and the new earth, but will be with us forever. And that, that experience that we are going to have is only because the same one who created the world and all things that exist is going to keep everything together going into eternity forever and ever and ever. He will be the center of all things forever. He's just want to hold your hand. And so if you are despondent and if you are anxious and as you are being encouraged through our teaching and discipleship to not be uh, discouraged and, and to be anxious outside of the scriptures, we recognize those conditions, but understand clearly that the same one who has created the world, he can help you. He's there to help you. And he has by providing the word for our guidance and providing the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And so, my encouragement to you today is as we read about creation and the creation story, don't just think it's a Sunday school story for children. It should reinforce our confidence in a God who has done all things well. Let us pray. Father, we are... Encouraged by the words of our Savior when he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Lord, we thank you for this tremendous truth that the triune Godhead has worked together to create all things that exist. And the same triune Godhead has worked together to provide us with salvation. And it's in your hands, Lord, that we are kept. We know that having been kept there, we are safe. Our times are in your hand. Lord, we'll have them there. We pray for your blessing. We may leave a space challenged. That we may be determined to seek more about understanding about the role of Christ not only in our lives, but in all of creation, and in the way you will use him as you fulfill your plans in this world. We give you our thanks in the Savior's name and for his sake alone. Amen.